It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I'm really looking forward to talking with my guest today. Joining me is Humpus Jakobsen, I hope I pronounced that correctly, the founder and CEO of Brisk.io, or perhaps I should say the former CEO of Brisk, as, as just recently they made a decision to shut down the company. And so I thought it'd be useful to have Hampus on the show to talk about what Brisk set out to do for the sales community and to share his opinions about maybe why, in the end, it couldn't achieve its goals. So welcome to Accelerate. Thanks a lot. So uh, hopefully I didn't butcher your name too badly. Perfect. Oh, thank you very much. So you're joining us from Malmo, Sweden, which is a beautiful place, especially at this time of year when the sun's out virtually 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. Um, So take a minute, maybe give us a little bit about your background. So yeah, I'm originally I'm a computer science engineer, and I think that even more defining of my background is that I'm a I'm the fourth child, and there's as as am I. Oh, that's great. Yeah. See, we're special people. Uh, no, but I think what's peculiar about being the fourth, my brothers are seven, eight, and ten years older than I am. And what's so so peculiar about that is like I kind of grew up with five parents. And what made that very different, I think, than a lot of peers, peers of mine is that I've kind of grown up in a world where just do it. Like, you know, my parents were never impressed by anything I did. Because they'd had three kids that had done everything so amazingly, of course. I'm just laughing because it's so familiar. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, the, the, on the flip side, they allowed me to do pretty much anything. Exactly. They were like, yeah, you know, somebody else did that and they didn't die from that. Well, uh, and also my older siblings, my three older siblings also were shocked at what I was able to get away with. Because Oh, exactly. Oh, exactly. I, I always heard that, oh, he got a computer at that age. Like, we would have never blah, 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 blah. Um, so, Exactly. Um, I was always the spoiled one, according to them. Yes. Um, oh, it's so thing, funny. Same experience. Yeah. I, okay, good. So we're the same cohort. Um, but what I think was, was very then like defining for my childhood is that it's, it's like, I, I never understood it, but in a way it was the perfect uh, entrepreneurial education because I always had to kind of constantly pitch people whatever I wanted to do because like, I, you know, you have five parents, and they have wills of their own. So I had to get get into their minds and figure out like what does Marcus want to do, what does Andreas want to do, what does mom want to do, what does dad want to do, what does Christoph want to do, and then figure out like how do I get my will through this. So it's constantly getting into the minds of the user, um, which then led me to thinking I wouldn't study computer science because I felt I was super cool, super interested about how machines could emulate people in one way or another. And then I did my master's in computer science and, and, and in control theory and AI to, to, to tinker with that. And I was super curious about that. And then, like, total by chance, a couple of friends and I started a company called TAT, The Astonishing Tribe. Um, we started this company. It was like a hobby project. And then we were contacted by a friend of ours who got a job at one of the big mobile manufacturers and he called and said, okay, we've got this super good problem. We have to build this super complex phone and we have to get a user interface, something on the screen to look nice and we're clueless. And we happened to have done a lot of like hobby projects when we were kids on that. So he said, can you help us out? And we said like, Yeesh, okay, let's, yeah, let's help them out. Help them out and stumble into over uh, eight years building a 180 people business 
with customers, pretty much everybody, uh, Nokia, Samsung, Sony Ericsson, Motorola. We designed Android for Google. Uh, we ended up in 2010, we ended up shipping 12% of all the world's phones shipped like globally by all manufacturers that year contained our technology and product. And it was very cool. It was complete crazy. I mean, it was like runaway success. And the business plan was very easy. The business plan when we started a company was uh, like have fun, uh, work with great people, and constantly learn stuff. That was pretty much the plan. Uh, and that was all intelligence we had. We were totally clueless. Um, so, you know, a lot of work. Um, I probably aged a lot of time during those years. Um, <laughs> but then one of the, so then we got acquired by BlackBerry, which is a, an amazing thing. We didn't have venture capital, so we got acquired at $150 million. I joined uh, BlackBerry, and then I ran M&A for them for Europe for, for two years, which allowed me to sit on the other side of the table and just look at companies, uh, in, look at companies from like the huge ivory tower of being one of the world's biggest mobile manufacturers. And then it, it really dawned to me how much I hated the way that TAT had done sales. Because we did these huge, like $5 million plus deals. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and it, it was 18 months sales cycle. And it was an amazing amount of wine and dining. You know, not wine and dining, actually. It was, I would almost call it like highly intellectual because it was like the customers were people who pretty much had 10 years of 10 years plus of experience in exactly that subject. And uh, they were like PhDs or whatever in that subject. They had built all the platforms to build all the mobile phones previously. And we were kids. So, so they thought they were smarter than you. Well, that was the interesting thing. I think we came from the, uh, we came from the generation, like I'm born in 1979. And I'm from the generation where the parents said, we bought this new VCR. Can you please help us figure it out? And our customers were not that much older than we were. Mm-hmm. But we were the cohort that had figured out the VCRs, and they were the cohort that never got the VCRs. So the difference was that they were kind of a bit humble about technology. They were really feeling, hmm, like I built a lot of mobile phones, but I can't really do this. And then we came along, and we were, you know, cocky kids, but we were super nice. Like we were really saying, well, maybe we can help you out. Uh, can you give us a mobile phone, Mr. Motorola, and we can check it out if we do something. And then Swedes in general, there's very much Swedes how they are population very humble but also extremely craftsman centric right so when they gave us that mobile phone we worked nine a day for like you know 10 days and then we had sent it back to them saying okay we did this we don't think it's very nice but we tried at least and they looked at it and they were just blown away because they're like how on earth could you have done this and since we lowballed it because we're Scandinavian they were of course even more impressed they were like they said it was so so if they would you know if they call it amazing, then what's you know what's on the next right? The yeah, modest about the expectations. So exactly under promise, so, over deliver, right? Yeah, which was like you know Scandinavian. It was not any design in it. So then what happened was that um, so we closed those deals, and it took you know a long time, and everything was really complicated, and like they had more lawyers than we had employees. Um, well, actually, they always had. Um, but the headache I had was that it was completely unpredictable. Like if I went into the room of our salespeople, and the salespeople were engineers generally because it was very complex went to the room of the salespeople and said how many deals we're going to close this year or like who are we currently talking to what do you think the progress is it was just total gut feel and i really hated that it just felt so stupid so then coming to blackberry i really felt well we were probably stupid at tat and then i looked at blackberry i saw that it was kind of the same thing it was kind of surprising listening to them talking about how they did deals and it was still not very predictable and I really felt like I'm, you know, I'm an engineer, and I looked at sales processes, how they were made, 
And it just feels like managers really want to predict stuff. Salespeople constantly lie to their managers, sandbag and, you know, kick the bucket and do a lot of stuff to, to kind of not tell the truth so their bonus code don't get messed up or their, their, their quota doesn't get increased or their territory doesn't get split. Um, and manager constant, managers constantly pe- uh, pressure salespeople saying, can you update the data? I need more data. And the salespeople re- reply back, do you want data or do you want me to spend my time talking to customers? Which ends up being this really bad loop because at the end of the day, when you as a sales rep... And a false choice, by the way. Exactly. The problem for the sales rep is that when you call the customers, you really don't remember everything. And when you hand over deals internally, the handover is worthless. It's like lead created that date, one call registered, and now I'm handing it over as an opportunity. And the account account executive says, what happened? And it's like, uh, we talked to them, we're kind of interested, have a call with them. Thanks. That's amazing. Like You have no clue what's going on. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that I really felt like I would love to build like this engineering grade process of how to do sales. I was like curious about it if it could be done. So we started a company, which was your goal, stated goal, is to make sales as predictable as engineering. Exactly, that was really what we felt. This would be so interesting. And we started out by saying, let's start to visualize the sales data because that would make so much sense. If you see the progress in the CRM, you can actually make it really predictable. So we built a little visualization tool. This is back in August 2012. A little visualization tool, plugged it into Salesforce and Microsoft Dynamics and Sugar CRM, like the three big ones. Mm-hmm. Um, sucked out the data and showed them on a screen so you could look at it, and it looked like you know static noise. And we just thought, oh, okay, so we, we failed. Uh, you know, we couldn't visualize it. So there was problems with the algorithm. We talked to the CFO, and the CFO said, no, that looks perfectly right. And we were like, what? But how could you predict anything from this? And he said, no, that's what I'm. That's why I'm talking to you. <laughs> and we were like, but. You know, garbage in, garbage out. Like, no, nothing can make make signal out of this noise. And then we realized, oh, we have to get salespeople to input the right data. That's so we closed down the visualization thing yeah, after two months of work, built a little mobile app that allowed people to super swiftly work with their serum data, only did Salesforce because it was easier. And then anybody can download it with a free app, download it, and you can work with your Salesforce super swiftly. So what, what did the mobile app do? What was the data that they were collecting? So it actually was like, a, think about it as it's actually kind of just a task manager. But the nice thing is that you could actually update opportunities and accounts and leads in it. So it was really nice because salespeople downloaded it and they saw their tasks and leads and it was a very modern user interface. And then they had all the tasks and they could just, it looked, you know, I was, I'm a UI designer for 10 years of osmosis. Or, so like, it was a nice user interface. It was a consumer grade user interface, but an enterprise grade backend and security and everything. So it was really nice. People could like work with their Salesforce data, and it felt like like it actually was 2013, and not, you know, I'm not going to piss on Salesforce, but the the older version of Salesforce, Lightning is great, but the older version is, it feels like you're looking at Yahoo, uh, 1999, yes. yeah, um, and uh, horribly so. Um, and the thing is, so as people started using it. We had 400 companies downloaded it in a month, and it felt wow. But then what happened is that we talked to the managers, and the managers one by one said, please, why did you make a mobile app? We want our salespeople to come and sit by their desk and not like be at Starbucks. And you know, having built mobile phones for 10 years, I, like for the first four weeks, I just told them, you're wrong. Everything will become mobile. Everything will become mobile. But four weeks after getting one after one after one, like, you know, really smart people telling me I was wrong, my brain started understanding that I'm probably totally well, wrong. What, what did they tell you you were wrong about? And who they was said, telling you you were wrong? 
sales all, managers. Sales managers said, I want my, and I, I didn't know at the time, but they were telling me inside sales is the new thing. Um, so I was realizing, ah, we, we got to like, make a tool for inside salespeople because that's when you can make the biggest impact. Because the field salespeople, for them, you know, they meet one client or two or maybe, maybe, maybe three per day. The data input problem for them is more like, do they have connection? It's like they can open their laptop, they're sitting at the airport plenty of time. But for the inside salespeople who are touching, you know, 10 to maybe even 40 customers per day, for them, just remembering who they're going to call is, is really hard. Also, for the field reps, especially, you know, back to your experience with TAT, I mean, bigger deals, I mean, I, I would still contend that they're less predictable than more transactional type business. Absolutely. So, 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 so in a way, asking them to update stuff was more taking their own notes. And I think that anybody who do those kind of elephant huge deals, I mean, when I worked, I mean, ran at TIT, I knew the name of the dog and the spouse of the person I was going to talk to. Right. And I didn't put that in the CRM. I had it in my notes because otherwise it, like, you know, it would be spooky. So like, I know everything about the person I was going to meet. But if you're an, a SaaS salesperson selling for $5,000 uh, per year uh, or per deal, I mean, you're going to be happy if you remember the last name of the person you're going to talk to. You're like, this is Dropbox. Who are we going to talk to? You mm-hmm. call. And then by, by looking at that, you try to search, what's the guy's name? What's the guy's name? What's the guy's name? So that you at least address them nicely. And like, who it is it? So we pivoted sort of to that. The, the myth of personalization. Yeah, and, and, exactly, exactly. And I think that's actually coming later, I think, on trends. I think that I really feel that we're moving into a really scary world. But like wrapping up risk, so then we pivoted into being this desktop-based tool that did this. And it started out really nicely. So we're now a desktop-based tool that helps SaaS salespeople to be on top of what they're supposed to do. And we kind of recommended them small things to do so that we could fetch some data from them. So we kind of said, you got to call Leanne because you forgot calling her. And you could click, oh, you shouldn't call Leanne because it's a closed lost opportunity. And oh. Mm, thank you. Now we know that we're going to update the CRM, mm-hmm. and, or you said, "Oh, cool, thank you," and you call in. So it was a great experience for us, like finding where we actually got the flywheel spinning. But the problem we got into, which took a lot of time to understand, was really the fact that, and I think everybody knows this who's a sales operation manager, is that everybody's Salesforce is not only technically customized; it looks really different, but it's it's like process customized. So it, like. There are people out there that call that don't use the proper objects for the things they're supposed to be. And they don't do things the way they're supposed to be. And Salesforce has no direction of telling you how to do it. So how to use the lead object, how to use the contact object, the campaign, the task object, or whatever. People just do whatever. Mm-hmm. Which meant that every single customer we met, we ended up being more or less a consultancy company, helping them how their sales process should work a bit, how to work with modern tools, how to help them integrate their kind of automatic emailing systems, their campaign management systems. And we felt, no, 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 no. We don't want to be a professional service company. Well, as I was say, you're, you were forced into a position, it sounds like, where you're having to customize every opportunity that you had, every sales opportunity you had for Brisk. Yes. And that was the thing. We really felt we don't want to do this. And it's not scalable. Reasons. Exactly. And the thing about it is it is scalable in a... Like, if you want to build a nice professional service company, it's scalable. Like, we could just invoice right. the hours, and that would be all great. Well, I don't just, think that's what you started. You started a product company or services exactly. company, right? Exactly. So part of it was that, I A, I built that company before. Um, so, like, I wasn't too keen on just doing it the, the trip one more time, because TAT had, of course, professional service involved. When you're working with these giants, you can't just say, take it or leave it. The second thing is, like, we have venture capital. So the VCs were saying, like, this is going to be, uh, you know, 
money in, money out, no people in between kind of business. That's what they all want. Mm-hmm. And then three, which is unattainable uh, in some sense. And then number three is that honestly, like I had, I have done a huge exit. I have money in the bank. I really want to do something which is is moving fast and like really doing really big impact. I wasn't keen on closing one deal every third month and doing a huge deal. I instead wanted to like bring in hundreds of customers every month and kind of roll out over the world. And now it sounds like I'm 21. I'm slightly older, but you know what I mean. It's, yes. it's for it. Why not? So it felt more interesting to kind of try to build a global scale of a company faster. So it, all of these three together made it, we have an opportunity that is building a professional service company. Or scale down and build a lifestyle business um, which has like a salespeople can download and install a tool which is uncustomizable. So like it's, it's going to work for you, but your manager is not happily pay for it. But you can pay, you're going to pay ten dollars anyway because like you know out of pocket ten dollars per month, nothing. You're going to be happy because it saves you Salesforce hell. Uh, not being able to, you can't build a big business, but you can nicely you know build a small business. So both of those opportunities were non opportunities for us. So we ended up saying, okay, let's fold this. Um, so we decided to fold it Easter, and uh, now have an, another company wanting to take it over, and like they're going to probably build. Another company from what we built, and I guess it's going to be, you know, what they say about like cafe owners and restaurants. Nobody wants to build a cafe because you have to take all of the costs or a restaurant. But it's awesome to buy a, a cafe shutting down or a restaurant shutting down because you have all of the permits almost done. You have you know all the kitchen done and everything. So what I really hope is going to happen is the people buying the business they will actually be able to actually build this from scratch. Like they have all the everything they need now. Um, so it's going to be interesting. Well, you you point out you know very interesting sort of conundrums. I think, and you mentioned something that was scary. And I want to get back to the scary bit. Is is that I think what you what you ran into was that fundamentally, and I wonder if this doesn't apply maybe in broader terms across the the sales enablement space. Is that fundamentally a lot of these apps are just better ways of getting data into Salesforce. Mm-hmm. And that that in itself really isn't sort of a compelling need that's sustainable. It at least seems like to me. I mean, because it's more about, it's less about, uh, it's less about the customer and growing sales and more about, you know, the administrative tasks. Yeah, and I think the, the, the thing about that is I think that, I think that you could absolutely build a company based on only the fact to, to get more data into the CRM. But I think that the problem of that, so, so I think that there are a lot of CFOs that would happily pay to know more. But I think some of the problems is that it's very intangible. Like what, what is more information worth? Uh, a bit hard. And then the other thing is that I think that a lot of people buying that tool would say, the alternative to this tool, guys, is that you just do what you're supposed to do. And talking to the salespeople, right? Update, so kind of update, like, up, update your records after your call. Just update so. your records, exactly. Right. So I think that it's, and I think I think I think the reason people would would maybe buy the tools is because they believe that quote unquote data is the new oil. That they're sort of thinking, well, all is data. But what you very quickly find out if you're a normal company and not Facebook and Google and Amazon and 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 Baidu and those guys is that you have such a little small, you have such a small data set. I mean, let's say that you're turning around a thousand customers every year. The patterns that you have from thousand data points is completely random noise. You, 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 can, you can derive like average deal cycle, but you already knew that. I mean, you could have looked at that data pretty quickly. So I think that what we met a lot of companies were very optimistic about feeling, oh, we can be data driven. 
but you can't be data driven on 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 that size of data. Well, uh, that's, well, that's an interesting question because if you look at the literature about sales enablement applications that are coming out that uh, claim that they're they're an analytics platform mm. looking at your your information. Um, yeah, sample sizes are all fairly small. So, what at what point does it become material? Yeah, and I think that that is, of course, like I now. Funny enough, I mean, this is actually what my my computer science major is about. <laughs> so, uh, like, there is. I mean, you can statistically calculate, you can look at the data, and very quickly actually calculate like when you get a uh, possibility to do any kind of prediction on it. Uh, and of course, like if you have a thousand data points and they're all exactly the same, then yes, you can do predictions. But if they're all exactly the same, you already know the answer. But one of the bigger problems with thousand thousand data points is that those thousand data points is relying on something as pesky as humans updating it, which means they're extremely noisy. So, I mean, all of the data you have depends on that the salespeople update the data. So I think you come back to the original point, which is we need to get humans to update this. When, and then when you ask humans to do that, they're going to say, do you want me to talk to sell? Do you want to talk to customers? Do you want me to update data? So I think the only reason to, the only way to be truly data driven is if you can just uh, like auto record all of those things. And I think that we have those technologies now, you know, dialers and email loggers and everything that, so you have all the emails logged, you have all the calls logged and everything. And from that, I think we can probably be data driven. But I think that at the same, same time, I don't think that's where the big value is. I think that we, if we look at all these sales tools coming out, I think that there's a huge value on actually just saving salespeople's time and, and trying to be more personalized. And I think that, I mean, you, you lifted it earlier, like, but I think that I think we're in an interesting place and time right now that we now have technology enough to send out thousands of personalized emails. Um, so, I mean, you will get an email from a quote-unquote bot within a year that feels very, very like, you know, oh, we actually went to this school together or like, uh, you know, I met you on Newark Airport when you did that and then we talked for 15 minutes in our church, remember me? And you were like, yeah, yeah, I was at Newark. I don't know if I know this guy, but I probably did. And, you know, it's just made up, totally made up. It scanned your profile, it scanned your Facebook, it scanned your LinkedIn, and it made this email. And I think we're going to be in a couple of years where we're going to have computers that's, you know, dial up and do the first phrases and then quote unquote hand over the phone to human and stuff like that to save humans time. But the, my fear of having that is that what we're doing when we're um, automizing all of this is that we're making, when we're trying to make it personal and making it convert, we're making it so much more shallow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's my biggest fear that we're going into now with sales tools is that, I mean, I, uh, being the CEO of the company, um, and then now the company folding, I have the email address of, of all the people that quit. Like if somebody quit, I have their email address to make sure that if somebody emails somebody, I will get the emails to make sure that nothing gets lost. Right. Which means that uh, well, at least once every day, I get five emails which are addressed to five different people at Brisk uh, who's left Brisk over the years. And I see the emails. And seeing that... As Leonard Cohen, I mean, you, the, the, the cracks where the lights shine in. Mm-hmm. It's horrendous to see these fake personalized emails. And you well, just, I, I would have thought you had been getting those anyway as CEO. Yeah, the thing is, I would get one, but when I, you get one, it's hard to tell how fake it is. 
that when you get five, and one is this, hi, Carmen, um, we met at Dreamforce last year and had a quick chat, blah, 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 blah. And uh, I think it was by the um, demand uh, where stand. And then I get the email saying, hi, Hampus, we met at Dreamforce last year. Uh, I think it was by the, blah, blah. it's like, okay. <laughs> uh, it's just like, you're, and that's like, it's beyond what you want to reply to. And the crazy thing about these new email bots is that you can't click unsubscribe because it's technically sent by a human. Right, if they keep the volume under a certain level per day, correct. Exactly. So it's just so irritating. And I think the fear I'm having there is that, and I think that we have this discussion in the sales industry a lot, is that, you know, outbound versus inbound. Should you email customers or should customers find you? And there are companies like uh, like Intercom Mm -hmm. who are not doing any outbound. They're writing great blog posts and they want you to come. Um, And then they have companies, most companies, that just do massive outbound. And there there are great reasons to do both. And I think we're going to see a blend. But one of my fears, what we're going with sales tools, is that we're going to have massive tool fatigue. Like people are just going to be so tired of trying trying new things. We have to integrate all of these things, and they're going to end up with salespeople just trying to dial up to eleven to just you know it's it's not a quote unquote numbers game because I think the problem when you just treat it as a number game, it just becomes horrendously impersonal. Well, right. So that's exactly what's happening. And and certainly the way a lot of companies are using these inside sales tools these days and sales development tools is precisely that, just purely as a numbers a numbers tool. And not only are the is there a danger of the the reps themselves experiencing tool fatigue, but you're gonna exhaust the customers as well. Yeah. No, because the messages they're receiving are all these Incredibly obvious fake impersonal messages. I mean, you know, my my cue is always, you know, any mail that starts with the word hi hmm. is is an automated email. But to the extent that they try to engineer, I guess one of the dangers I see is the extent to which you try to engineer salespeople out of your process is that you're basically engineering your fate as becoming sort of a commodity type product. Right? I mean, if you can if you can take the salespeople out of it and there's no value being added by sales and everything's being done uh, through your website or on an automated basis, then then there's nothing really distinct about the product. No, and I think the weird thing about, I mean, I think that certain products will be bought uh, without people involved. I mean, if you're sure. buying a product, which is like, if you're pro- buying a prosumer product, you're downloading, like, whatever, you're buying Evernote. You don't need paying. sales, and that's a commodity product. But the, the exactly. price you pay at the end of the day, though, is that, yeah. is that your willingness to switch and your ability to switch becomes that much easier. Yeah, and I think that I think that we're going to, I mean, it's really clear, like, the classical uh, discussion about, uh, like, rabbits and deers and, and elephants. I think that in the rabbit land, when you do really small deals, like, sub $500 a year deals, it's going to be self-service. Sure. In, ele- in elephant land, there won't be automated emails, because the person you're talking to knows you, and you know that person, and there's, like, there's a value of still having trade shows and, you know, introductions and whatever. But in the middle, when we're doing these $5,000 deals, that's when we're going to see this like dilution of kind of faith and or whatever you would call it and and I think that that's where you see a lot of the startups coming um well you see the you see the startups in the both bottom segments because doing elephant sales is something that most investors don't appreciate that well because it the metrics as we talked about really earlier with TAT is like yeah we signed one deal and it's a million dollars hooray when do you think you're going to sign your second deal i have no clue okay 
Like, why do you need more money? Yeah, because, you know, we, we, we don't know when we're going to sign our second deal. Okay, come on. Uh, it's ridiculous. Then, you know, you go and interview the customer, and if they're not Facebook or Google or somebody that you really are impressed by, you're never going to invest. Right. So I think that a lot of people are starting these kind of flywheel companies. They throw spaghetti at the wall. They try to get their MRR to be high enough to be impressive, and they show a really nice hockey stick, mm-hmm. and then they go out and try to raise more money. And I think that's, that makes the investors push to the CEO, push to the, push to the salesperson. It's a numbers game. Send out more email. Do oh, it faster. More calls. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you see that in all of the industry statistics that that people generate, and some fairly big names in the investor space that you know swear up and down by these these metrics. And while they may have some value as an investor, they have less value for companies building a sustainable enterprise, and certainly less value outside the very specific sort of SaaS space, which is is the thing that I find interesting is that, you know, people serve, yeah, the cutting edge of what's happening in sales, many degrees, many respects is happening in the SaaS space, but how much of it's really transferable to other areas? Yeah, no, I'm not. I, yeah. Some is, but some distinctly won't be. No, I think that, I think that, I think that when I meet startups today, Startups that have kind of come across, like come beyond the kind of ten thousand dollar MRR barrier, mm-hmm. uh, it's like one of my like one of my first questions. I don't like when they start telling we do with a, I don't want to hear what you do. What I want to know is like how big is your average deal size? And they say, oh, okay, it's around you know four hundred dollars uh, MRR. It's like okay, interesting. Four hundred dollars times twelve. Okay, interesting. Okay, so how do you do sales? Yeah, we do outbound. Fly to big conferences. Oh shoot, you fly to big conferences in that. Yeah, like all of our customers, that's not going to scan. Or, you know, companies that, like, just like the first question I think that defines a lot of people is, what's your average deal size? Yeah. Because that just is so defining. And then I think that to help that company, it's the, the thing which I think is getting more and more popular and, and I think is so interesting is actually talking about the customer journey and talking about the customer journey from the fact that you're like not even aware that you could become a customer to having bought and liked the product and, and buy more licenses. And I think lot more companies should really map that journey. And I think what we're getting now, interesting enough, is that we're getting all of these kind of consumer companies that do that manically, because like every little conversion is a thousand people that Mm -hmm. you lose or Mm -hmm. more. So, you know, the slew of Airbnbs and and those guys, they really know what they're doing when they kind of want, 1% is a lot. Um, And I think what's nice about that is that we get those people now to start SaaS companies. So they're kind of asking, what does the user do now? What does the user do now? And it could be like ask their manager for permission or ask for slides. They're going to be pitched in front of a group of other um, peers. Oh, we should give them material for that. And then the CFO is going to look at it and the CFO is going to say, why is this good? Oh, we need an ROI calculator on the page, of course. And I think when you get those discussions in, which is like what is in the mind of the user, then I think we're going to get a lot more pleasant buying experience. Um, Just the other day, I was trying to, or not the other day now, but a year ago, I, tr- I wanted to buy DocuSign, uh, like the e-signs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I realized, okay, I need DocuSign because we really need that now. Time to buy it. And it took me like two weeks to buy it. Uh, I mean, I, it, I end up tweeting to DocuSign on, like saying, I am trying to get in contact with you. You're not, like, I, I want to talk to a sales rep. Can you please, like, help me? And they, the, the Twitter handle at DocuSign replied, uh, you're using the wrong handle. You should be using at DocuSign support or whatever. And I was like, are you kidding me? I'm trying to buy your product. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
And it's just because we were a small deal, of course. But that experience is that I think it's so interesting to see how we're in this world where we're used to the customer experience of the Airbnbs, and we expect that experience on our enterprise products. But what we're getting is the experience of elephant hunters, which expect you to kind of be on a call and a setup meeting and everything. And you don't want to talk to a salesperson necessarily, but maybe you, do, maybe you need it. But I think that that's, I think one of, the, one of the interesting shifts I think is going to be is really how do we unlock that? How do we create referral systems so that when I say I want to buy DocuSign and I bought DocuSign, it says, if you, if you want, you can get three months of DocuSign free if you refer to another person and they will also get DocuSign free, which is, you know, the consumer model. That's how we do with Dropbox. Mm-hmm. And I would go like, oh, three months off. My, that's a lot of money. So I would, of course, spread it to my, some of my friends on Facebook and LinkedIn. And I was like, hey, guys, like we're using DocuSign. We think it's going to be really great. Anybody want three months? I, yes, I do get three months. And my friends are going to say, yeah, why not try DocuSign, guys? So, I mean, all those models we see in the consumer world, I really hope that we're going to try to apply those models instead of doing this school of hard knocks model of sending a thousand impersonal fake emails. Well, we shall see how that unfolves. So, <laughs> or unfolds. So, um, we're going to move into the last segment of our show. And here I've got some standard questions uh, that I ask my guests and uh, a little bit of a departure from what we were just talking about. But um, so, on this first one, it's a hypothetical scenario for you. And in this hypothetical scenario, you have just been hired as a new VP of sales for a company whose sales have stalled out. And CEO on the board really anxious to have you start turning things around relatively quickly. So your f- the question is, your first week on the job, what two things could you do that would have the biggest immediate impact? This depends, of course, on what kind of personality. But myself personally, I want to talk to customers. So I, I would really want to, I, my first thing I would like to do is I want to feel the pain of the customer and understand why they're buying it. So that's the first thing I want mm-hmm. to do. And then the second thing I would like to do the, uh, the first week is now that I understand the customer pain, and I would like to try to interview as many customers as possible and trying, what do you use instead? Like if you weren't using us, what would you do? Like before you met us or talk to customers that didn't buy us, like mm-hmm. how are you solving the problem? Then when I understand that, I would, a- I would ask as many reps as possible within the team, depending on how big the company and team is, I would ask them, like, take me through the sales process. Like, take me through from, you know, whatever lead comes in or you email the lead to it's being closed. And then just listening to them structure that discussion and seeing if it actually in any way matches. And I would, I would be like, you know, the, the eight-year-old child. I would be like when they say, and then I send an email, I would say, what why? email do you send? And yeah. why do you send that email? Right. And they would be like, oh, to do this. Okay, Why? And then I would just constantly ask them. And I would ask a lot of people, and I would just end up with, I think, 50 uh, pieces of paper with like every single salesperson saying their customer journey. And then on, on, on uh, like Thursday night, I would just compile, like, so this is whose hell we're solving, and this is what they're feeling, and this is why they even talk to us, and this is what they're thinking. And then I would describe how I think like we, we should be thinking about this, and then I would do... How are we actually solving it today? And I would present that on, on Friday. I would go out and like meet the CEO on Friday because I expect that he or she wants to talk like my first week. And I would say, like, my first week, this is the problem the customers are talking about. This is the way we're trying to address it. And like the reason I think we're failing is because they're asking for, for a hole in the wall. We're talking about a drill constantly. We're just talking about this drill and how good it is and RPMs. And they don't, they don't care. They mm-hmm. just want the hole 
Right. Uh, and so my next week is going to be how do I get them? To, how do I get us to talk about the hole and why they're a hole and stuff like that? Okay. Good answer. So, next question. This is a short answer if you want. Give me a one-word answer. Or you can elaborate if you wish. So, when you personally are out selling, what's your most powerful sales attribute? Enthusiasm. Absolutely. I think that okay. a lot of pe- a lot of people that talk to me say you seem to be crazy about it. I want to know more. Yeah, I love it. Great answer. Who's your sales role model? Oh, that's a really good question. Hmm. Who's my sales role model? Ooh. I talked to, what's his name? Scott. Oh, I wish I remember his last name now. He's on Outbound Engine now. Um, I'm trying to remember his, uh, his last name. I was utterly impressed about how he ran sales. I was really, I mean, I was really, I was blown away. How he talked about how he structured sales and everything. Um, yeah, I was, I was, I really, I really liked talking to him. I interviewed a lot of interesting salespeople, and I was really, I really liked what he said. All right, we'll have to research the last name there. Um, yep. So, what's one book every salesperson should read? I actually think, and this is actually uh, something that Richard Harris told me when I talked to him, who's like a sales guru in the industry. Mm-hmm. I really like his answer, and it's like it's a really provocative answer, but I really like it. And I think the more salespeople, if you're a sales rep, I think you should actually read um, the game, uh, you know, the dating book, which is a highly controversial mm-hmm. and extremely womanizing book. Which is like an a really like I read it. It's like the concept. I haven't even read it, but the concept of letting being as a salesperson and stop thinking about this as a transaction and thinking about it as like a relation, like. I'm talking to you because I want to end up being married to you. I'm not talking to you because I, well, in, I guess, the book, they're also probably talking about stuff like one-night stands. But my point is, try to think about this like a relationship. If you lie, it's not going to go well. Um, And I think that book, I think, and really thinking about, trying to think about sales as dating in the actual meet, I think that's going to be great. Okay. So last question for you. What music is on your playlist? Uh, Radiohead. Mm-hmm. Is an, I mean, I'm manic about Radiohead. Okay. Uh, I think they're the, one of the best bands ever, and especially like some of their more melodical things. I really like Daft Punk. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they were super interesting. And then I like, um, uh, now I lost the name here. Um, oh, that, that's obviously how much I like them. Um, <laughs> it's, gonna, it's, gonna, it's only because uh, I asked you. appear in a couple of seconds now. Well, that's okay. That's a good answer. Yeah, so, it actually is. Uh, if you give me one, one more second, I, and I will actually realize it. Sure. I will realize it in one more second. We'll give I you must a second. realize it, because otherwise it's going to be embarrassing. You'll have to cut out this. I'll just be silent when I search, and you have to cut it no, out. No, we'll, we'll, we'll let you have some time for it. I'm, we're near the end here. People will give you a second to find out the answer. Oh, I wish I could remember what their name is again. Oh, okay, I can't remember it. It's a, it's a, really, a really, really nice sadcore band, American sadcore band, which is like... Um, the National. They're oh, yeah, The there. National. Okay. Yeah. I really like The National. I think that they're, yeah, really they're good. Those like three are really good. All right. Well, good. Well, Hampus, thank you for being on the show today. I'll tell people yeah, how they can get in touch with you. So, if anybody were to uh, find me, I'm, the easiest way is probably to go to hajak.se. Hajak.se. And my Twitter handle is hajak. And what I tell a lot of people is do not connect with me on LinkedIn because. <laughs> I, I have nothing against getting new friends, but 
most people just click connect and they give no context. And I, and actually on my LinkedIn page, I write my email address and on my, on my page, hajak.se, I write my email address. I just like, if you want to talk to me, then just email me and just tell me why. And I'm super happy to reply instead of, you know, just connect. I want to get in. I want to right. be, part, I want to be of part of your professional network. Yeah, exactly. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Well, thank you again for being on the show and telling us about your journey at Brisk. And rem- remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. An easy way to do that is to make this podcast accelerate a part of your daily routine, whether you listen on your commute, in the gym, or as part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Hampus Jakobsen, who shared his expertise about how to grow your business. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com.